Hi everyone, this is Mark Iskowitz, Executive Editor at MMM, and welcome to this week's episode of the MMM Podcast, where my co-host Larry Dobra and I interview people of note in and around the world of healthcare marketing. Larry will return to the podcast next week. Meantime, I'm flying solo here with my guest, Amy West, who besides her day job as head of U.S. Digital Health Strategy for Novo Nordisk, was named a member of our Healthcare Transformers Class of 2018. She has also appeared at our spring conference, MMM Transforming Healthcare, excuse me, conference uh, this past year. How are you doing, Amy? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Sure. We're thrilled to have you and you're live in studio, uh, which is even better. And I thought we'd talk about uh, some of the things, uh, some of the themes that have arisen as uh, pharma wades deeper and deeper into the digital health sphere. Um, we've kind of bucketed that into three areas, clinical trials, uh, partnering with startups, and data privacy. And uh, Amy is very well versed uh, in, in all three areas. She has points of view on those areas. And so we're going to uh, get into that. So uh, without further ado, ado excuse me, let, let's, let's get started. Um, Okay, so in the clinical trials area now, when you appeared at our uh, Transforming Healthcare Conference, you actually interviewed um, a couple of um, uh, CEOs, or uh, actually uh, not necessarily CEOs, but one of them was a CEO, uh, executives of uh, startups in the clinical trial space. Um, uh, those being, um, uh, let's see, one of them was, uh, uh, let's see, oh, sorry, uh, Antidote. Uh, you interviewed Lauren Shuckmel, who was CEO of Antidote, and Mickey Nash, who's co-founder and VP Business Development of Evidation Health. And uh, you were talking about some of the things like pr uh, process uh, improvements and efficiency improvements that these startups have brought to the clinical trial space. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, as um, – uh, you know, are, how are these things kind of, uh, as, as, we, as we see, as we hear, uh, pharma kind of uh, breaking down the silos uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, incorporating, you know, some of these uh, process improvements and efficiencies um, in, into its clinical trials process? Um, you know, how, is, is, is it working? And, and uh, you know, what's, what's the proof of it working? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, it's a really important area, obviously, for pharmaceutical uh, drug development and discovery. Um, the clinical trial uh, setting is is really important for us in order to be able to get our drugs approved and into the market and into the hands of people that can benefit from them. Um, but as we know, the clinical trial development process is very long and very expensive, and um, it's it's fraught with some challenges related to um, finding the right you know finding enough people to include in a trial. And then obviously getting the people who have been recruited, keeping them in, into the trial for the length of the, of, of the initiative um, to get to an outcome. And the advancements that we're seeing with technology and, and digital health interventions have really provided a way to expedite and create more efficiency in that process and hopefully uh, get a clinical trial to fruition faster. Um, the uh, ability to leverage um, sensors, wearables, things like that as a component of clinical trials to keep track of, of the participants helps keep the adherence going much more smoothly, as well as leveraging, um, it, it creates a, uh, an ability to create a remote clinical trial setting. Um, so people don't necessarily have to go into their doctor's office because right. they, they have access to these these remote tools and Internet of Things types of data collection components. Uh, the other piece is um, the opportunity to leverage artificial intelligence when it comes to um, recruiting people for these trials. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, it enables um, the technology to take, um, take over a, a very labor-intensive role to try to go and find people and also provides an opportunity to uh, in, include a, a wider, uh, more diverse population. I think a lot of the clinical trials, you tend to see a lot of light populations because of what you know, we've been able to recruit from traditional means. But by leveraging technology and leveraging AI to get in and look at EHR data, it allows us to find people from, a, 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 I guess, a broader, diverse population mm -hmm. to include in these trials. And then again, through leveraging the opportunities that we have with remote tracking and, and monitoring, we can keep the people in, in the trial longer. That it, it, We don't have to get them to come in clinic. So it really helps with that aspect as well. Sure. And I think, you know, in terms of like using synthetic trials, you know, trials based on real world evidence, we saw, I think Pfizer announced that they had a label extension for a drug that was based on a real world evidence uh, data set. Um, uh, is, is that happening sort of more, is, is that practice proliferating? Do you see that, you know, happening in a bigger way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we're going to continue to see that trend. I mean, that that's really a lot of, again, what, you know, what we're hearing from our other customers in, in the healthcare space, the payer side of things. Um, I think most of them would agree that, you know, the products that we have in market, they've been FDA approved, they're efficacious. They're, they're, they're very good at, at helping people, um, but the, the challenges that we see a lot of times is just because the medication is good and it works doesn't mean the individual is going to take it the way they're supposed to. So we don't sure. see that compliance and adherence benefit. And so, therefore, we have a lot of pressure on us to be able to prove outside of a clinical controlled setting that our products do deliver the outcome that we say they're going to and help that person have that better quality of life and then also help impact that sort of total cost of care down the road. Um, so real world evidence, it's really important to sort of bridge that, that gap that we see from the clinical control setting to what really is happening in the real world. Mm -hmm. And um, again, being able to monitor with sort of frictionless digital collection uh, means with mm -hmm. sensors and wearables, things like that, that's becoming a part of some of these clinical trials and, and marrying up that more traditional trial side with the the real world evidence collection based on the the, the sensor data and, and, and sure. sort of that frictionless data collection. So yeah, yeah. we're going to continue to see that come together. Mm -hmm. And the more we can leverage those those frictionless ways of keeping people engaged, I think the better off we're going to be to get to. Uh, better real world outcomes and uh, hopefully overall better, you know, outcomes for the individual patient because they'll stay on, you know, they'll stay engaged longer. Right. That's kind of like the Edion model. There's a startup that Carolyn McGill was also another one of our healthcare transformers. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of the model that they're um, pursuing, that synthetic clinical trial model. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder whether payers are going to really be skeptical of, of that kind of data or whether they're, like you say, if they're going to really embrace it. Well, I think it's the proofs at the end of the day is going to be in the outcomes. And it is going to be a comp we have to have the clinical trials to prove the efficacy and the safety of the product. Mm -hmm. But it's that how do we keep the person engaged and adherent to the therapy to have that truly uh, optimized right. uh, benefit and outcome that, that they need. That it they does come down to adherence, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It <laughs> right, does. Right. Yeah, engagement and adherence. Yeah. Feeds off of each other. So um, 
you know, the reason I was pushing around the synthetic trials area and also in terms of other process uh, improvements, like you mentioned, the recruitment area, is that we've seen this, you know, kind of take hold in, in biotech perhaps first, but can it really take hold in big pharma, you know, in terms of the um, reluctance to accept something other than a randomized controlled cl clinical trial as the gold standard and the traditional difficulty of adopting, you know, new practices in, in big pharma? Um, I, I don't think we have a choice. I think we're, we're going to get there. We're, we're, with, with the rapid pace of technology changing, created, creating more efficiency and opportunity and, um, you know, the ability to sort of cut, you know, to cut down on uh, time to market, um, total cost of care. That's really what everybody's trying to figure out. So it's mm -hmm. it's not going to go away. It's just a matter of how do we get it figured out. And, you know, a lot of that, there are going to be some hiccups along the way. And, you know, a lot of it's also going to be um, tied into what the FDA is, is comfortable with as well. They're, it's sort of new for them as well. And so we're all kind of learning as we go in this process, but suffice it to say that, you know, the technological advancements are, are not going to go away. There is a lot of efficiency there. We just need to figure out how to harness it in the mm -hmm. most um, effective and, and safe way. And, and um, you know, safety is at the core of all of this. So we have to make sure that everybody that we're, you know, that we're comfortable with using these technologies to get us to a, a safe outcome. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, how else is commercial embracing clinical? Well, I would say that um, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot more earlier partnership uh, from the commercial side and the R&D side. Mm -hmm. So um, it used to be sort of, um, you, it was more traditional was that R&D was kind of in its own silo, developing novel solutions and drug discovery and different approaches to, to healthcare uh, from the clinical molecule side. And the commercial arm would then pull that through once it had been approved. Mm -hmm. And then they would market it and scale it from that point. But, you know, now as, you know, the, the offerings that we have in healthcare are more sophisticated, are, are really, really good. Um, and the clinical differentiation is, is, is not as broad as it might have been in the past. Mm -hmm. um, it's important that as R&D is investing the dollars early on, that they are walking down a path or they're, 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 they're paving a way that is truly going to um, provide a valued solution for the end user. Mm -hmm. And that we're not off creating something that it's really great, but we don't need it. Right. Um, and right. there's no market for it. And that way, it's there's just a lot of waste there. So the more that R&D and commercial can come together earlier to really understand what are the unmet needs of the market, what are the user preferences, um, how do we approach a solution from a truly empathetic point of view from the customer across the entire value chain. Really, your know, healthcare system is, is so interconnected with the patient, the provider, and the payer. It's really difficult to only find a solution for one of those stakeholders it really you need to think through the whole value chain mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's really important that though the commercial and the R&D side come together early on and, and and play together and so that as we bring the solution to market it truly has a value and a need in the market 
Sure, sure. And you, and you mentioned that, uh, right, we need to ensure that our, our needs meet those of patients exactly. uh, so that you don't have um, a solution. Looking for search, a problem. It's a problem, right, which <laughs> right. you said before. Um, and a lot of research goes into that and tapping yeah. into what, you know, consumer needs and preferences are. Speaking of that, you know, um, the second area I wanted to ask you about is startups. And a lot of them, I think, um, have succeeded, uh, perhaps where Big Pharma has not gotten as much traction because they have kind of their finger on the pulse of behaviorally what patients need to change behavior. And, you know, they kind of tapped into that, um, that, that, that insight. Um, and so big pharma, I think, you know, wisely is, 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 is moving more, more so to partner with those companies that have figured it out, so mm -hmm. to speak, um, and kind of as, as a way to stay closer to, to patient, patient demand. Um, so, um, you know, how, how is that from your perspective, you know, uh, give me um, your take on the state of pharma partnering, you know, circa, you know, mid 2019 partnering with startups. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, um, again, um, undeniable, we need to be focused on these opportunities. And, um, you know, pharma, we, the traditional pharma company, we have amazing innovation in the drug discovery, molecule development, device development space but we're not technology companies. And so our subject, merit, <clears throat> subject matter expertise is in that clinical side. Uh, but there are so many you know, startups out there that are expert in the technical side and also organizations that are very steeped in the consumer experience um, outside of medical healthcare, um, you know, that perspective. And so it's important for us to bring these subject matter experts together to find a solution that, again, has, you know, a good outcome from a medical standpoint, but also is something that engages the person and is easy to use and, and is, has that convenience factor that they're looking for. And so those are coming from different areas of industry. So we need to bring these together. And I think that, um, you know, I can speak from my own experience own experience at Nova Nordisk, we have a partnership um, with Gluco, which is a, is a technology company in the Silicon Valley area, and they have a diabetes management offering app application. And we partnered with them to, to customize one for our Cornerstones for Care patient support program. And, you know, they the, the key in partnering with them is really making sure that we had aligned objectives. Um, we were mm -hmm. both very dedicated to helping people with diabetes better manage their disease state and making it easier for them and more and more convenient and less burdensome and hopefully make it a, something that they don't have to think about quite so much, but mm -hmm. Im improve how they understand and take care of themselves. And we with that aligned objective, um, we were able to also appreciate the fact that we're coming from the pharma space with our with our clinical side of things, and they're coming with the technology mm -hmm. and the application space. Bring those things together, and you know, um, create a solution that was going to deliver for our customers at the end of the day in, in a collective way. And it's been great because um, you know we've learned a lot from them, and I, I would say vice versa. I don't want to speak for them, but you know, being a big pharma corporation, you know, and in the in the drug development space, we are not the most agile organization when it comes to bringing things to market, piloting and testing, but we just aren't structured that way. Mm -hmm. um, drug development takes a long time. Whereas they're coming to the table with that very agile software development mindset. Mm -hmm. So really learning from their iterative process, how they test, learn, 
gain insights from the from the user experience and move forward quickly and make make decisions that are are smart. Um, doesn't always have to be a hundred percent right, um, but you can you can make those adjustments as you go forward. Whereas on the pharma side, we're we're not always happy to we're not always comfortable moving forward unless we're a hundred percent you know right. But right, yeah. it's um, there's certain things where you can have a little bit more. Um, uh, you can you can. It's okay to not be 100% correct in, in some in some instances. It's as long as there's no um, risk to the patient or safety involved. But sure. it's it's kind of managing that and, um, and and learning from their processes how we can pull that agility into the work that we're mm-hmm. doing. And, and yeah, I wanted, wanted to ask you about that actually. So there were some shared learnings there in terms of ada- adopting some of their um, uh, agile agile processes. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, it's it's really around how do you keep um, a, a, a very quick, rapid pulse on your 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 customer? Mm-hmm. Um, how are they engaging with you? What are you learning from them? Because it's digital or data and, and, and data driven, we're actually able to see sort of in a real time way who's using it, where are they stumbling on on the user interface? How can we make corrections there quickly? And really being able to make um, say you know monitor on a on a regular basis, almost in a real time kind of way, and then make adjustments, um, not quite that quickly, but in a, a much more rapid rapid way. And mm-hmm, then um, mm-hmm. um, if something's not working, it isn't a failure; it's a learning. We just mm-hmm. adjust it, we fix it, and we move it forward. We don't just throw it all out. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's been mm-hmm. um, it's been a, a it's a good good learning and just a, a a different approach to how we think about. Um, user needs and how we pull the end user point of view and interface into the work that we're doing. Right, which is something perhaps that was lacking a little bit before yeah. is pulling that end user's point of view in. Yes, and then trying yeah. to also kind of triangulate that back to the R&D side of our business. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is what our learnings are in speaking to the R&D yeah. teams in, in those terms as well. So, now How do you balance revenue targets with, you know, these new pilots and partnerships with digital health? Yeah, well, I think um, at the end of the day, you know, our, our, our core commitment really is about, you know, how do we help people better manage their diabetes or, or the, whatever their chronic mm-hmm. disease state is? Um, and we have medications to do that. But we again, we have the challenges we see with adherence and people staying on therapy the way they're supposed to, or optimizing their therapy. So by leveraging these partnerships with a tech company, with with the with our with our Cornerstones for Care app, if the person has a better understanding um, of um, why they're taking the medicine, um, what's happening in their in their body as they are taking the medicine, they're able to track it. They're actually able to see visualizations of, of, of the impact. They're now getting more engaged. They're being mm-hmm. more informed and they're now able to see the benefits of what they're doing and they're more invested and they're staying on, they're staying more engaged and staying on therapy longer. You have and, data to, to show that. Well, we, I mean, the, the trend is that they're becoming more educated and they're, mm-hmm. they're better able to stay in control. And the, the, the thought would be that by staying in control, they are adhering to their therapy. They're adhering to the other aspects of managing diabetes, their mm-hmm. nutrition, their their activity levels, um, potentially managing stress better. But those are all mm-hmm. things that we can look at. And right. if we can actually quantify it in, in some sort of a data-driven way and get that data back to the end user, if it's the patient, they can just better understand how to better self-manage. And that's really the key of it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if they're better self-managing, the, the, the hypothesis is that they are also taking their medication as their doctor has prescribed. 
so from a from a pharmaceutical business standpoint, um, we would we're, we're having extended length of therapy and and utilization of the product, so we're seeing a benefit from a revenue standpoint there. Sure, I'm sure that's a lot. Of- easier now to track with all the wearables and sensors and, and it's getting there. I mean, I think it's still, I think diabetes. we're all, you know, speaking in general, I think everybody's, um, making roads in here. I don't think mm-hmm. everybody's got it figured out yet. I think data sure. at times can be overwhelming. You know, you, you're, you're capturing data from all these different sources. How do you bring it all together? What's the interoperability and how do you make sense of it? Cause at the end of the day, if you don't figure out how to make sense of the data, it has no value. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be really critical as a next step to really understand how can we take this information and use it to make improvements, get it to the end user if it's the patient, the provider, or even the payer um, for better decision making on their on their their end. But it's it's really analyzing and understanding that data for for you know decision-making purposes. Yeah. Now you, as you mentioned, you know, you were part of the team that originally built Cornerstones for Care. Um, I've been here at the publication long enough to remember, you know, when that first came out and uh, I believe you were on the cover of that issue. Uh, We'll we'll pull that one out before you leave. So, uh, you know, you can, for for legacy. Yes. Good, good memory. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, what did, you know, how did that feel to kind of like bring a gluco in when, you know, you already had this, which was ostensibly supposed to be a patient support program, Mm -hmm. you know, did that require some kind of like a, a sort of a, kind of a, um, you know, coming to grips with the fact that, look, you know, we can always get better, you know, we can always get more of that, like you said, that user, um, user generated insight, you know, and, and, and these guys, you know, are closer to the diabetes patient than we were, or what, you know, what was it, was there a realization there? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a couple of different things. You know, the, the concept behind Cornerstones for Care has always been about how do we, how do we get support for people dealing with chronic disease management particularly around diabetes, um, get it to them as in, in, a, in as personalized and as individualized as possible in a way that is via their uh, channel preference mm-hmm. and, and make it as seamless and integrated as possible. And obviously it's, it's a challenge because we're a pharma company. We have a lot of rules and regulations around how we can engage and, and what we can engage and all of that. And, and um, we, we always are striving to get better. But knowing that, you know, majority of people have mobile smartphones now, that's how they want to access information. A lot of people that come to Cornerstones for Care are accessing it through the mobile site. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were there for them it, through that channel. And so that was really important to us. And I I think that- They we, had a little more traction on the mobile and the mobile channel. Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, and, and, and that's the trend that's going to continue. Yeah, so we sure. want to make sure that we are, we are where they are and where they want, they want to be mm-hmm. engaged. Um, also pulling it through from a text messaging standpoint. And then also recently launching um, Sophia, which is our, our, our virtual concierge leveraging mm-hmm. um, artificial intelligence and natural language processing for people who are searching for information you know, using her as that almost um, sort of a human element to mm-hmm. that digital experience to engage people and get them to the answers that they're looking for as quickly as possible. And then also pulling her through with voice technology. So well, like with Alexa mm-hmm. and um, the uh, the voice um the voice technologies that are out there. Voice that, recognition technologies. Exactly. Or, or voice, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Voice yeah. activation, voice recognition. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Hmm. So again, it's really trying to understand what are the needs and preferences of the people who are engaging with us and how do we 
how do we make it easy for them to leverage whatever channel that they that they want to engage with? It shouldn't just be yeah. us pushing out information right. based on right. what works for us. Right. So uh, it was a, mo- a mobile channel play as much as anything else. Exactly. Because uh, uh, from what I recall, Cornerstones is a pretty robust CRM tool. It is. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, speaking of how startups are, you know, have kind of tapped into um, what motivates patients to change behavior from a, from a, uh, you know, behavioral perspective, you know, the Googles and the Amazons, uh, we've talked about their encroachment, uh, getting deeper into the health space as well. And you made the, the, the comment to me about a year ago that, um, you know, when people go on Google, they're, they're searching for things that they want to be searching for. You know, when, God forbid, they have a health problem, they're searching for things that they, they don't want to you know, be searching for, but they have to. They have no choice. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why the Googles and the Amazons uh, have kind of made, you know, kind of so – that's one reason why their, their, their inroads have been very successful. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's many others. Um, so that's something that, um, you know, we're, we're seeing now as well, and, and pharma's trying to reconcile that and, um, and learn from that. Um, and – but in the, in the privacy area, um, you know, this has implications. Um, recently, um, you know, as, as patients share more information with Google, um, you know, we're seeing that, um, you know, there's on the one hand that reduces friction in the healthcare system and, and could be valuable from a healthcare transaction standpoint, but it also um, has some pitfalls. And, and for instance, there was a recent lawsuit um, where, um, you know, uh, I think it was uh, a, a academic medical center um, and was involved with Google um, in a, a, a patient data study, um, and the lawsuit revolved around whether you can really de-identify uh, data. You know, mm-hmm. when Google is involved, because the data can be tri- triangulated in so many different ways, uh, given how um, you know, as, as we said, how, how much data patients are willing to share with with a Google. Um, and so, I wanted to ask you, you know, as, as pharma becomes more patient facing, as it's um, you know, partnering with startups to get that user-generated insight. Um, how is how, how are you, you know, modernizing uh, your own data protection standards? Obviously, you've, you've been in collecting patient data a long time in, cl- in the clinical trial space, mm-hmm. but is, is this, um, you know, in, invoking some new uh, efforts on your part? It's definitely um, being discussed quite a bit. Um, you know, our the work that we do... Um, at the organization and the data that we've collected is is so sensitive and we're so dedicated to protecting that and I think most I think most pharma companies are it's it's just um, we simply can't afford any breaches we can't afford to not be clear about what the intended use is and how you know how we are commingling data or any you know it just there's just no margin for error there we take that very seriously and in you know, in order to move that forward, it's, it's going to take some good thought and working with um, experts in this space to make sure that as we make decisions around data strategy and things like that, that we're doing it in a right in the right way. That's protecting everybody who you know whose information that we have, and it's not going to be easy. And I think that it's it's probably one of the reasons why healthcare and pharma in general have been laggards in the, in the technology space. It's just very, it's very scary, and it's it's very difficult to manage data. And even when you have an intended use today, it could change tomorrow. And you know mm-hmm. how people are um, engaging with those data sets, the interoperability of it, all those considerations. And you know, as we're collecting more information from different sources, as you're creating new partnerships with third parties, you're 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 creating another 
way to collect information and data. How does that get commingled with everything else? And how do you protect and manage all of that together? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have any good answers for you today because it's, it's in discussions. And we, other than to say we are committed to, um, you know, making sure that every protection is in place like it always has been. And, but, but ensuring that, you know, as we evolve in our ability to bring solutions to people, we're able to harness that data in a way that um, is going to benefit them. But again, keeping keeping that data safe and and protecting it and, and not having any breaches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that we've seen you know you know knock on wood any big data breaches. Although the the, the Merck one a couple of years ago um, where they um, yeah. had a, an issue, um, but you know um, nothing involving you know like CRM systems uh, right. or like large you know. Uh, amounts of patient data, you know, get, getting breached. Um, so I would, I would imagine that's, you know, um, partly due to the industry's, you know, really um, reluctance to really get to. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it's scary. We just can't afford. We cannot afford to have, mm-hmm. you know, a data breach like some of the financial services companies do, like sure. the credit card yeah. companies and Facebook and. You know, some of those organizations right. that have right. been challenged a bit lately and they're in the news. So. Right. So the yeah. industry oftentimes needs a catalyst in order to change. Let, let it not be that, you know, but, you know, uh, and we, and we certainly having do not safeguards want, in place is We don't important. want any trust issues with our customers. I mean, sure. our, our trust is if we don't have trust with our customers, we're in a lot of trouble. So that, you know, trust and safety are at the core of what we do. So Right, right. Then we're also seeing, I also wanted to ask you in, in the patient data area, this whole burgeoning area of, of health data as a business. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, organizations like Luna DNA um, and patients like me as well, which, you know, just was in the news today. They, they have a big, they, they uh, did a $300 million stake with patients like me. Oh, sorry, sorry mm-hmm. GlaxoSmithKline did a $300 million stake and patients like me. Um, and now they're they're reaping the rewards of that, but you know, in terms of drug targets, uh, but there's, it's also invoking some privacy concerns. Um, and uh, you know, United Health Group, um, uh, which now owns patients like me, um, you know, either you say, you know, I think um, Lisa Soonan and um, Jane Saracen Khan, um, uh, and um, a third author. Um, uh, his name excuse me, I apologize, uh, wrote a really good blog post on this about how, you know, if, if you feel that, you know, more data, um, you know, is, is just good for, for the health system in general, then, then you're for that, you know, United Health Group having access to patients like me uh, and their uh, large data sets. Uh, but if you're, you know, the cynic, you know, kind of worries about something like that, um, where do you come out on that? Well, I think it's, I think it's like you just said, I mean, it depends on the individual and how they how they view data, how comfortable they are with sharing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to take a lot of convincing in, in some some groups of people. Um, it's it's going to it's somewhat individualized based on what your level of, of comfort is. Um, so I think time will tell as these things. You know, if if we're going to see a true benefit to the the health of the individual at the end of the day. I think there's going to be, you know, more more comfort and and trust in that. But if we start to see data breaches, these types of things happen, it's 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 going to create a lot more scrutiny, a lot of concern. And I I I still think it's early days in the healthcare space with these types of things. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say right now because I don't have a crystal ball. But I will say that sure. you know, data and privacy are just it's it's it is 
the stringent nature of what we have to do in the pharma space and the need to protect it and the commitment to protect it is what I think has made us slower into this technology and, and use of, of data optimally because it's uh, just right. it's just the, the historic yeah. reluctance is born out exactly. of an excess like, amount of caution. Yeah, and I think even the FDA, I mean, there's clearly a lot of conversation going on from a legislative standpoint, like, you know, um, what, you know, how how does this information need to be uh, protected? I mean, we were seeing a lot of things coming out of California now around, you know, the um, CCPA um, and, and their rules. And I think we're, we're just trying to interpret what all of that means for the data that we currently have, what we're going to collect in the future, what are the consents that we need. And it's it's really evolving very yeah. rapidly. And I, I don't think there are any answers for it right now, but we are we are definitely – looking at it very, very carefully and trying to figure out, okay, how best do we ensure that we are leveraging this data in a way that's going to benefit our customers, but protecting, keeping it protected, safe, and um, um, secure. Sure. And, you know, I think pharma is realizing that when you measure patients differently, like with a patient registry, um, like, um, you know, with a, a wearable uh, sensor-based trials, that kind of thing, you get a different result, sometimes a better result uh, because the patient is outside of, say, a clinical trial environment, you're in the real world, mm -hmm. uh, but it comes with its own, um, uh, you know, issues and challenges. But, um, you know, I would think that that's a route that pharma has to pursue, you know, because even from a competitive standpoint, you know, Glaxo is now partnered with, with patients like me. And um, if, yep. if other companies are not on board with that new way of measuring patients, then they, they could find themselves at a disadvantage in, in the discovery area. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, We're trying to, everybody's just trying to keep up with the pace of the change and, you know, how do we, um, how do we use this information and this data and this technology to the betterment of, of, of our customers. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so uh, how about we move to the speed round? Sure. Okay. Yep. Uh, so what do you do to unplug? Well, um, it depends. Right now, there's not a lot of unplugging going on, but um, <laughs> but I am a big um, I'm a big fan of running and exercise. Um, I it's obviously good for you know your health, your overall health and, and wellness, but. Um, I think more from my mental state, it really is a, it's a great way for me to really get the endorphins going and, and, and get that sort of stress relief. So I, I do a lot of that. Um, I actually almost killed myself on Saturday oh. <laughs> trying to run in a hundred degree oh my heat, gosh, but yeah. I won't do that Oof. again. Yeah. That was not smart. Um, <laughs> but, um, but again, it's, it's, that's how, that is how I unplug. And I also, um, I also do some volunteering. I'm a, I'm a big animal person. Um, I, grew, hmm. I actually grew up in a very rural area in Pennsylvania. Oh, no kidding. We didn't ask about your background. Yeah, know. well, it's from a long time ago, but yeah. um, grew up in a very rural area in Pennsylvania on a uh -huh. farm. And um, so I spent a lot of time with huh. animals and taking care of them and, uh, um, you know, the importance of taking good care of animals or, or even people or anybody who is in, is in a situation where they need to be taken care of. They, they can't mm -hmm. help themselves or they rely on you for their care. Mm -hmm. So I do um, a lot of animal rescue. I do, um, I work for um, um, an animal shelter um, mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. volunteer my time when I can. It's been a little difficult lately with travel schedule, but yeah. um, I actually, it's, it's as simple as cleaning cages and uh, going in there and, and mm. helping to keep, keep uh, just doing things like that because it's, it's kind of a mindless a mindless task where you just kind of get to hang out with some mm -hmm. some animals that just 
want to be loved Love, and fed right. and yeah. clean and yeah. all of that until they get it to get so they get a, a new home so right. that's, that's it's lovely. really nice yeah. right right um that's the first time we've heard that you know someone unplugging in, in that manner yeah uh, now, now where did you grow up if i may ask i grew up in a village hmm. uh called new franklin in pennsylvania mm-hmm. it's outside of chambersburg pennsylvania which is outside of gettysburg oh wow so. okay okay yes yeah so the uh west of king of prussia in that area yes about Phoenixville three hours and, yeah. 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 okay yeah, yeah, yeah. okay Actually, it's like it's about it's south central Pennsylvania, just north of the Mason Dixon line, south central yeah. Pennsylvania. And how did you uh, get into the pharma industry? Was that your first um, gig out of college? No, it was not. I actually wanted to get into politics. I worked on Capitol ah. Hill ah. for a little while and um, enjoyed it, but learned quickly that that was not where I wanted to, you know, spend my career. And uh, met my husband, who actually works in pharma. Reeves, and, yes. Yeah, yes, and he works for Merck and. Mm-hmm. Um, through sort of a series of moves with his company over time, um, I, I was always involved in marketing um, and then what, had an agency background and then started working with pharma clients and then eventually went over to the pharma customer client side um, with Wyeth Pharmaceuticals and then mm-hmm. came to Nova. I've been at Nova 10 years. It's an amazing company and uh, have... Um, it's it's a great company to work for. I've been very um, humbled and proud to work for them. Excellent. Shout out to Reeves. Uh, he's been our <laughs> past ch- jury yes. chair at our awards and just a great, great all-around yes. guy. Um, second uh, question, back to our questions here. Who's your marketing role model? It's funny. I, I don't really have one. You know, I when I think about it, you know, some things come to mind. Um, I'm a big fan of Martha Stewart and, and her story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's really self-made Um person started out yeah. in finance but then hmm. transitioned into marketing it's just you know i think we've seen her rise over the years and um it's, it's about marketing she's a, she's she's a very talented woman but she knew how to package it up and make mm-hmm. it um look beautiful and make people want to be a part of that sort of lifestyle image and you know she built from sort of books and ca- catering and books to the empire that she has today um and I, I find her like super interesting and, you know, I just, I like her rise. And of course there's also, you know, the, the tech players, the Jeff Bezos of the world started, you know, you know, selling books and look where he is today. And uh, the Elon Musks of the world mm-hmm. who, you know, very controversial, potentially polarizing guy in, in light of his approach to things and how he talks to his um, stakeholders at, at the, uh, at his, uh, at his um, annual meetings, but, you know, he's a visionary and he's not wrong. I mean, he, he you know, we're going to get to this, this world of, of elect- electronic cars or, um, you know, a space age sort of Jetsons world. And he's, he's really very much leading that charge. And his approach has been really interesting and controversial, but I do admire that, that vision and willingness to take it, you know, put a stake in the ground and, and commitment to it. Um, and then also, um, you know, somebody who's super controversial, but I do find it fascinating is Elizabeth Holmes um, with um, Theranos, even though mm-hmm. it's, like, it's the classic cautionary tale. And her approach was it's wrong in just about every single way, um, ethically, morally, legally. And it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. cautionary tale because I think yeah. there's a lot to be learned from the mistakes, right. the big right. mistakes. Yeah. But at the end of the day, her idea, it's going to happen. It's just not going to mm-hmm. happen today. And But mm-hmm. you can't lie about your approach and you can't do these unethical things, which is why she's in the trouble that she's in. But 
that vision is is really impressive. And again, we're going to get there. It's just how do we get there? And we need her mistakes in order to mm. get there. Right. Right. And right. Um, mm-hmm. it's the same thing with you know a lot of a lot of um, a lot of other people that you look at that are are leading or potentially even failing. I mean, we have to like in pharma, we we there is no room for failure in pharma as far as when you you know if you are going down a, a drug development path and it just fails in the clinical trials, it's done. You've you just spent probably a billion dollars trying to bring something to the market that's not going anywhere. And so there's just we don't have a lot of tolerance for that, but we've got to get to a place where our approach is is more agile so that we don't have that just complete precipitous fall off if something doesn't Mm-hmm. There's going to be better tolerance for failure. Yeah, and saying. so we've got to we've got to learn from our failures in a way that is productive, as opposed to oh, mm-hmm. it's just all going away. Right. Know? So right. Yeah. Thinking about failure is is it's it's you know of the last few years I've really thought about failure in a different way. Failure mm-hmm. in some ways can be a success if you if you truly learn from it and and can sure get to a desired out, outcome on the back of that failure. Mm-hmm. Right. How do we learn from failure? Very important. And you already hear people talking about, you know, we're in a post-Theranos world here where the kind of mm-hmm. hype has been, hype bubble has been burst, you know. So yeah. um, it's, it's uh, you know, cautionary becoming tale, a, a cautionary tale. Very much so. A household cautionary tale. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Really a lot of fun and appreciate yeah. the time. And um, great to see you. Hopefully, we'll do it again sometime. Absolutely, absolutely. Just uh, take care of some household uh, household uh, housekeeping issues before we log off here. Um, if you haven't seen it, the MMM salary survey is open for business. So please uh, uh, help us to compile the most comprehensive picture of salaries among pharma marketers, both on the client and the agency side, by taking uh, that short survey. Um, and uh, we um, also hope to see everybody uh, in October at um, MMM Awards uh, Ceremony, uh, which is October 10th um, at Cipriani Wall Street. So if you haven't already, uh, consider booking your tickets for that. And you can find out more information about the dinner online. Um, so that's going to do it for us, uh, for uh, Amy West and our producer, Mickey Brown. Uh, this has been Mark Iskowitz signing off. We'll see you next week on the MMM Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.